0: Epcom looks like the last item we uh, need here is a stir on
1: the H2102 at their convenience. Okay.
0: 13, we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like you to uh, stir up your cryo tanks.
1: Okay, you know, The here. Overhead hatch is closed and the uh, heater current looks normal. Okay. Five guns. Go, we've This is Houston. Say
0: again,
1: please. Challenge. I don't know what it was. Okay. You see. You want to look at it? Yes. Yeah, Houston, we've had a problem. Roger, we're copying it, Capcom. We see we've a hard. We You see an airspeed bus the there, Captain? Or uh, you come? Negative, flight. I believe the crew reported it. We got a main B under Okay, flight. We've no, got some instrumentation signs. Let me let me add them up. Roger. Okay, stand by 13, we're looking
0: at it. Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Squarespace
1: and Tuperev. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Jason. So
0: this is one of our special episodes. We are covering Apollo 13, which launched just about 50 years ago, April 11th, 1970. And as you just heard, it did not go to plan. It pushed NASA to the very brink, but ultimately proved to be one of the proudest moments in the history of American spaceflight.
1: I thinking about this. It's probably a toss up between this and Apollo 11 in terms of public knowledge, right? A lot of people know a lot about Apollo 13, mostly thanks to the movie. But um, we're going to talk about it and, uh, you know, the coverage of it, all of it. But let's start with the crew. Good idea. And the crew story for Apollo 13 is pretty dramatic. It is.
0: We've been talking about all these missions and their backup crews and their crew rotations and things like that. And Apollo 13, before they even had the accident in space, was a really unusual mission. Um, because of the crew changes that they had leading up to the launch. The original plan called for the backup crew from Apollo 10, that's Gordon Cooper, Don Isley, and Edgar Mitchell, to be the prime crew for 13. That's how the math worked out. You were backup, and then you got your prime slot. But Cooper and Isley had both fallen out of favor with NASA by this point. Uh, Cooper had uh, apparently taken a lax attitude toward training, and Isley's behavior in Apollo 7, that was the cranky mission, if you remember, mm-hmm. Along with a apparently quite public extramarital affair, there were lots of private ones, but a very yeah. public and ugly one, had uh, pretty much gotten him
1: disqualified from going on any future missions. So, Deke Slayton had to go back to the drawing board and selected Alan Shepard as commander, Stuart Rusa as command module pilot, and Edgar Mitchell, keeping his original position as the lunar module pilot. So He got got to stay on. They fired the other guys. I don't know who else is on this mission, but I'm just going to fly the limb. That's all I care about. (laughs) It does take more than one person. Alan Shepard had had inner ear issues and was recovering from surgery to fix those, but that was taking longer than expected. So, the Apollo 14 crew was swapped in you know Edgar Mitchell made it through round 1 didn't make it through round 2 yeah. this put Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes and Ken Mattingly up for the 13 flight and if you've seen Apollo 13 the movie there's is that scene where Tom Hanks comes
0: home and says we can't go to Mexico because I'm thinking maybe for spring break we'll go to the moon mm-hmm. which actually didn't happen that's that's the conversation they had when he got moved up for Apollo 9 uh, but they, they used it that way in the, in the movie. But it, it is a true thing. Alan Shepard, and we'll get to this when we talk about a- Apollo 14, uh, an amazing kind of turnaround to get him back to flight status after uh, being one of the original Mercury astronauts, but uh, not in time for Apollo 13. So uh, that's only the beginning <laughs> of the changes that happened. One week before launch, can you imagine this? One week before launch, Charlie Duke, who was Capcom on Apollo 11... He was the backup lunar module pilot for this mission, and uh, he got the measles from his son. Yikes. He got the measles. And here's the problem with the measles. They, need, they don't want anybody getting the measles in space. The measles is bad. And they did the blood work and uh, checked for the antibodies for the measles, and it turns out Everybody else in the prime and backup crews had been exposed to the measles except for Ken Mattingly, who was intended to be the command module pilot for Apollo 13. And on the advice of the flight surgeon, um, they bumped him off the mission two days before launch and replaced him with Jack Swigert, who was the command module pilot on the
1: backup crew. It's a lot of change. I can't imagine how that must have felt uh, in in those days leading up to this. And the, the film kind of overplays this. Like, yes, this was Swigert's first mission in space, but he had trained for months side by side with the Prime crew. They were in good hands with him. The movie, yeah. like, everyone's holding their breath. is like, this guy totally has this. Yeah, he's not somebody
0: that they just, like, picked up on the street and said, can you fly right. command module?
1: <laughs> yeah. He... Uh, this
0: was the job. This is why they had backup crews is that he, he was training to be command module pilot. The thing that has always struck me about this story is that they chose to the system that they had is that if you bumped an astronaut, you replaced him with the the astronaut in their role from the backup crew. And I'm a little surprised that they valued the crew dynamics so little mm-hmm. um, and they must have had good reasons for it. But it it surprises me in a scenario like this. That they didn't, well, I mean, I guess I guess because Charlie Duke got the measles, right? So he wasn't going to go to the moon. So they had to mix up the crew. But I'm just a little surprised that they didn't just take the whole backup crew, right? Wouldn't you do that and make them the primary instead? But that's not what happened. They just took Swigert yeah. and said, you're going to be in that seat because we don't want uh, Ken Mattingly uh, to get the measles in space. That would be very bad.
1: Yeah, I guess they just had to mix and match and, and make the best of it. But yeah, you imagine you're training with somebody for months and months, you know, shoulder to shoulder and all of a sudden, that person is gone. Even though the, the replacement is perfectly capable, you lose so much of that communication and nuance that you have together, right? Like just like any other group of people. And I would imagine that that was a, a difficult decision, but um, no, it, there's no doubt in my mind that it it made Apollo 13 worse. Like this, you know, he was well-equipped. Um, Swigert had been selected in the fifth round of astronauts in 1966. He had degrees in both mechanical engineering and aerospace science, served in the Air Force as an engineering test pilot like so many of these early astronauts had done, and he was 38 years old at the time of Apollo 13. Now, Fred Hayes was the youngest
0: member of the crew. He was 35. He's from Biloxi, Mississippi, um, and he was the lunar module pilot on this mission. He had been a Marine Corps fighter pilot and an Air Force test pilot. It's pretty... Uh, expected astronaut resume for this yeah, period it really uh, is. He, he was selected for the the 1966 astronaut class as well he'd already been working for nasa at that point as a civilian research pilot and prior to apollo 13 he had served as the backup lunar module pilot for both 8 and 11 and was the first person in the 66
1: class to receive a prime mission assignment yeah he was a superstar While 13 was Hayes and Swigert's first flight, Jim Lovell, of course, was super experienced. In fact, at this point, he had 572 hours in space, making him NASA's most experienced astronaut. Those missions we've covered, Gemini 7, Gemini 12, and Apollo 8. He had been selected back in 1962 after a career as a naval aviator and test pilot. Again, this is who you think (laughs) these early astronauts are. And uh, was actually one of the very last members of his class to still be active at NASA. But 13 was his final flight. Yeah,
0: he decided before they even went up that he announced that that he would be retiring. Um, he was capping off his uh, his career with a, a moon landing, which unfortunately never happened. And we should talk about why they never uh, happened. But <laughs> before b- before we get there, there's so many strange stories around Apollo 13. And uh, this is one of them. It's this car car fire that took place in late March, a few weeks before the launch. There was a liquid oxygen tank at Pad 39A. Liquid oxygen tanks, by the way, are trouble. Let's just get that up front here because you're going to hear more about them. Anyway, this liquid oxygen tank at Pad 39A was set to vent. Two cars were driven into the area by security personnel to clear the area, and they burst into flames. And because uh, liquid oxygen, you know, and oxygen, just basically the liquid oxygen boiling off means that there's a high concentration of oxygen in that area. And the car burst into flames and uh, burned uncontrolled for
1: more than an hour. So uh, that's not a bad sign or anything. I had no idea this was a thing until the Apollo 50th Twitter account tweeted it uh, hmm. a couple weeks ago. It's like, oh, that's a wild little bit of <laughs> Apollo 13 fact that I didn't know. Yeah, and it, it involving liquid oxygen tanks again. Because, yeah, of course, th- they oxygen's were. a bad deal if it goes wrong. Yeah, it's very helpful, but um, in concentration, it's very bad. So, what was uh, Apollo 13 going to do? What was their mission?
0: Geology. Everybody loves geology, a lot of rocks there. So they were headed for the Framora Highlands, which is an area that was uh, interesting, and NASA wanted to target it because they thought that it was created out of material that kind of spattered all over the surface of the moon early in its history by a giant impact, and so they thought there would be interesting geology there. They actually, The crew actually, on their own time, uh, did some geology training in order to uh, get a better uh, grip on what they were going to be seeing. Uh, They were going to participate in two... Four-hour moonwalks. They were going to drill a core sample. They were going to install this heat flow experiment that required two more cores to be drilled. And they were going to install a new seismometer on the moon and leave that behind to listen for moonquakes.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the one that Apollo 11 had put out died pretty quickly. And then Apollo 12 had put one, so this was going to be the second operational one. Right. And we're going to hear more about that uh,
0: seismometer from Apollo 12 in a moment because it's connected to this mission.
1: It is. The lunar module for Apollo 13 was named Aquarius after the ancient Egyptian god who brought life to the Nile River Valley, but also part of the title of a popular song of the moment thanks to the Broadway musical Hair. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. That was, that was a thing. It was a thing. I was really hoping you were going to sing it. You did not let me down.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, I, mean, I didn't do the whole production. I, I'm still wearing my clothing and stuff, but yeah, <laughs> it's from hair. Hair was a thing. Uh, yeah. And the command module was named Odyssey, which is another double reference. It's both uh, the Odyssey, of course, the Homer, Homer epic poem, but also it's a reference to Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick and 2001, A Space Odyssey. Which uh, was from what 1968, I think. So definitely in the public consciousness as a uh, vision
1: of of the future of space flight. Yep, great names for this flight yep. hardware. The mission launched on on time, on April 11th at 2:13 Eastern Time, but it wasn't exactly a smooth launch. The center second stage engine cut out two minutes early. That the pogo oscillations, which we spoke about in earlier Saturn launches. Uh, they were present here, so a lot of vibration up and down the stack. And this was actually a pretty close call. There was a possibility that the engine could have exploded, uh, but it didn't. And they were able to run the other four engines as well as the third stage a little bit longer to compensate for the reduced power. So they still got to orbit where they uh, where they wanted to go by, you know, compensating for that burn.
0: Yeah, I saw a report that said that if they had cycled the engine one more time it would have um it would have blown up. Ooh. So, not not great, but that's a that's a miss and of course famously they they assumed that this was the glitch. Every mission's got a glitch. This would be that. Yeah. It was not, but uh it was uh close to being really bad on its own. Now, let me tell you about the that third stage that had to burn a little bit longer. Ultimately, the third stage got to take its own little trip. It was set on course to crash into the moon. Uh, and to do it at a location close enough to the seismometer left by Apollo twelve that they could register the cra- the impact on the seismometer, and they did. Oh, that's fun. Crash a spaceship on the moon, see what happens. And they did it. So that went well. We got we got yeah one check mark off the list. Yeah, I mean technically it went well in that they crashed something that
1: smashed into the moon, <laughs> but it was what they wanted to do. They meant to do that, mm-hmm. so it's fine. Uh, two days and seven hours into the mission. The crew did one of these live TV broadcasts from the ship. And we, we've spoken about this over the course of Apollo, how the, this program slowly ramped up. They did, you know, black and white and the color. Uh, it was a show off the command module and the limb. And there was even um, a new system that would let the astronauts drink while they were doing a moonwalk. So they were going to show all this exciting stuff, right? Uh, but it, um, it didn't go very well. Like the the video was fine, but none of the TV networks in the U.S. opted to carry it live. They it was in prime time, and they all just stuck to their regular programming because apparently they felt that everyone had seen this all before and that the public had lost interest. Yeah, and it's
0: a uh, it's given what happened immediately afterward, it's a, a real shame, and it shows that that wasn't the case. But uh, you know, one moon landing and then another Apollo mission after that, and then people are not even. I guess, interested in watching, or at least the networks didn't think they were interested and wanted to stick with their own programming. So uh, they complete that that broadcast and uh, they are going to stow the camera and get ready. And one of the things they need to do is a bit of routine maintenance that is a part of being on an Apollo mission, which is to stir the oxygen tanks. And this is where it all goes wrong, but again, completely routine thing to stir
1: the tanks. Mm-hmm. Totally just part of, of, like you said, everyday life on an Apollo mission. We do need to take a brief side trip into these tanks. So it's going to uh-huh. be like the magic school bus. We're going to shrink down and go inside the tank. Um, oh, no. It's dangerous have, in there, Steven. <laughs> can you tell I have a five-year-old at home all the time now? Uh-huh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so these tanks were in the service module, and they held, like, slushy, super-chilled oxygen, stored at really high pressure. Right. You may so, think. So,
0: yeah. Liquid oxygen slush, almost like oxygen ice. Mm-hmm. So oxygen is a is a is a gas normally, but in order to store it in a tank, they've got it um, very very cold, very high pressure. Yep. Uh,
1: liquid, slushy liquid. Yeah. Mm. So you can carry a lot of it, right? It's really dense. Exactly. Yeah. The oxygen was super important. It provided breathing air for the crew, but it, when it was mixed with hydrogen, it powered the three fuel cells that provided power and water to the command module for most of its flight. So if you think about the Apollo hardware, you know the command module is a little sort of Hershey kiss shaped piece of hardware. That's the only part that comes back after an Apollo mission. It's the only part that can survive re-entry. But it's not very big. And so during the mission itself, going to the moon, circling the moon, coming back, it's dependent on the service module for power, water, and air through these oxygen tanks and the other, you know, various hardware. And then they jettison it and the command module has its own batteries and, and its own backup oxygen and water just for re-entry. And all this is gonna be very important here in just a minute. Right. The service module is like the,
0: the essentially it's like the battery mm-hmm. for the command module. There's no people in the service module. It's just attached, but it's got the oxygen tanks. It's got the fuel cells. And if you remember, there there have been some experiments with like fuel cell cars and things. The idea is you take hydrogen and oxygen and you mix them together and you get water and you get power. So they're able to generate drinking water and breathing air and also power using this system of uh uh, these are their fuel tanks, essentially, for the for for this
1: part of it, for for the the electrical generation part. But there's a little bit of a, a problem with storing oxygen this way. So over time, the oxygen, again, it's super cold, it's slushy, it begins to stratify in microgravity. So you get these layers, and the density, it, you know, it, it it doesn't, it's not dense all the way through in the same way. And if you have probes in there to measure how much oxygen you have and the density isn't equal you you don't actually have a good idea of how much oxygen you have in the tanks so there was uh, a fan system inside the tanks and stirring the tanks means turning on those internal fans to basically mix up these layers again very common something that would be done uh, several times during an Apollo mission yeah, think of something like salad dressing or something like that, where you've got layers
0: of, in that case, it's different material, mm-hmm. but it's the same idea that the fans are there to kind of like swirl it all around so that it's all kind of evenly distributed. And then you can measure and get an idea of exactly how much oxygen is still in the tank.
1: And uh, and that's where the, the problem is. We're going to talk in a little while about the specifics of what went wrong. So in the case of Apollo 13, this call is radioed up and command module pilot Jack Swigert flips the switch totally routine and basically just all hell breaks loose bang yeah this is and the and it explodes
0: Mm -hmm. and we'll we'll get into some detail about what's going on here later but the reaction on the ground it's interesting and if you watch the movie apollo 13 it all gets compressed into about five minutes Mm -hmm. of sheer terror when in fact it was more like 35 minutes of slightly slower sheer terror. <laughs> but uh, the movie did a good job of, of getting that across. But basically the first thing, they think it's an instrument problem. They, they think that there's something wrong with the antenna or, or with a sensor or with a computer. The numbers are all over the place. The spacecraft suggests that it's rolling and moving. Instrumentation issues, you, you immediately think like our computers, the spacecraft is fine. Um, these numbers, because what you don't want to do is take action on something that's not real. And they, they had, a lot of the simulated failures are about right. taking action on something that's not real, that causes a real problem. So they're like, okay, you know, it's probably our computers, it's probably our sensors. Um, but uh, a few moments after that famous Houston, we've had a problem call from Jim Lovell. Uh, they report that the instrumentation issues were accompanied by a large bang, which is not, um, mm-hmm. not instrumentation. No, no, no. When you're in space hundreds of thousands of miles away from
1: anything, and something knocks on the outside of your spacecraft, it's bad. It's real bad. Yeah. (laughs) In Jim Lovell's book, he talks about this time, and there was conversation and even thoughts in his own mind of, you know, have we been struck by a meteorite? What's going on? And they don't actually report the bang down initially, because in that chaos, all super well-trained individuals, it took them a few minutes to realize they needed to call down and say hey look we had a we had a huge bang and we're you know we're rocking about up here and that's really when nasa and the ground control was able to sort of start to hone in on the issue and write it off that, hey this is not just instruments going crazy like there's something physically going on if you want to take this minute by minute by the way this is a great chance to plug 13
0: minutes to the moon the podcast from bbc world service that their second season is about apollo 13 and they go into intense detail about all the things that are happening really moment by moment in this area and pulling out things from the ground loop. And it's, uh, it's, it's great. If you want to dive deeper, you can get many, 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 many minutes about, about uh, the details of Apollo 13's uh, immediate
1: response here because it was chaotic at the beginning. I do want to talk about that line, the Houston, we've had a problem. Most people know it as Houston, we have a problem. It was sort of shortened for the Apollo 13 film to be a little more clear, I guess. And we have an audio clip here we're going to play for you. But when Lovell says we've had a problem, he's actually like jumping in. So his command module pilot says, hey, there's, you know, Houston, we've got a problem here. And Houston doesn't hear that part of this explosion damage, their high gain antenna. So a lot of the audio after this point is really staticky and kind of muddy but Houston is like hey can you repeat again a level steps in and says Houston we've had a problem and that those lines even the one of the movie that's altered a little bit like I mean that's a universe that's as well known I think as Neil Armstrong's first words on the moon <laughs> which are also up for debate a little bit because the transmission <laughs> there's some irony there I think okay Houston. we've had a problem here this is Houston say again please uh,
0: Houston, we've had a I think Houston, we have a problem predates the movie. I think that was a misheard, misremembered quote even before the movie came out and that the movie leaned into it because it's what people expected to hear. Maybe I'm, I'm remembering it wrong, but my, my memory is people always thought it was Houston, we have a problem, even though it's not what they say. <laughs> it's just not what they say. I think people just misremembered it. it regardless, like... At least the air was clear. I mean, not literally. The air is never clear in mission control. But it was the, the, there was a little more understanding. But still, they didn't know a lot about what was going on in space. Then, a few minutes later, the crew calls down with more bad news. And, uh, well, let's just play the clip. You can hear it's not good. And, uh, Jack, uh, our O2 uh, quantity number two tank is ringing zero. Let's look at that. O2 quantity number two is
1: what? zero. That's okay. Roger. Yeah, that's that's the good way you see and I listen today looking out the uh hatch that we are venting something. Crew they are venting. so we are we are, uh, we are venting points. something out uh, into the uh into space. Roger, we copy your venting. Copy that sir. It's a uh, gas of some sort. That must have been a terrifying thing to see.
0: Yeah. Again, to touch on the movie a little bit, that's a moment where the screenwriters are like, oh, this is good. This is is a dramatic moment because it's the moment when you look outside your spacecraft and, and something is venting, like there is something gaseous leaking from your spacecraft that is really bad. And it's no longer like just a mysterious bang with some instrument issues. It's a an active situation where something is damaged and leaking. And is that our air? Is that something from a tank? But it's definitely not instrumentation anymore.
1: And about this time, the guys on the ground in mission control they are realizing that Odyssey is is starting to die. I think the this comment about the venting really helped focus them on the data they had that they could trust. And the main power buses were short on voltage. There's warning lights everywhere. And two of the three fuel cells were offline, which is uh, yeah. not good.
0: It's really bad. So now... Like all of the Apollo command modules, Odyssey did come equipped with a set of small batteries and a separate tank of oxygen, but those were only supposed to be used when they detached from the service module and went into re-entry to come back to Earth. The ground sealed off the surge tank of oxygen, that's that for that. Um, and as oxygen slowly leaked out, the only remaining tank in the surface module, it became clear that the lunar module had to become a lifeboat because it was the other spacecraft and didn't seem to have the problem. And here in this audio clip, you can actually hear Gene Krantz uh, bring up the lifeboat option.
1: Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got uh, LEM still attached. The LEM spacecraft's good. So if we need uh, to get back home, we got limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow
0: our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the
1: main or the fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system. So we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. There is one other bit of movie line stuff I want to talk about when we're talking about Crantz here. I think the other famous line from the movie is failure is not an option. I think that's something that most people closely associate with Apollo 13 and Crantz personally. But it seems that it was never actually said. The line came from a series of interviews with flight controllers, one of which who said, you know, we laid out the options and failure wasn't one of them. But, you know, Hollywood tinkered it up a little bit and I'm fine with it. It's a great line. I think it very nicely wraps up his mode of operation and mission control. I don't have a problem with them changing the lines.
0: Um, And when we bring it up here, I don't think that's what we're saying, but it is just kind of interesting to see where history uh, was not quite good enough for the screenwriters of that movie. You got to have something you put on the poster, you know? That's fine. Yeah, just clean it up a little bit. Second draft of history.
1: So the ground and the crew are rushing to power up the lunar module and to shut down the command module basically all at once. And now at this point, we're about 90 minutes after the explosion, it's unknown if the command module could be restarted, but I think in this situation, you that's a problem for future you. You have no option in the moment. Uh, Turns it, out that they never really tested, what if we just completely shut down the command module
0: while we're in space? They didn't really think of that one.
1: But they had to do this dance between the two modules where there was guidance information on the computer of the command module that had to be transferred to the lunar module or the crew would be effectively lost in space no idea where they're pointed that's a really dangerous situation and so that they had to pull this information write it out and input it into the lunar module and now all of this had been considered I mean you said that they didn't really have a procedure for shutting down the command module and rebooting it but there was sort of this obscure procedure I think someone had written it and just put it on a shelf of what happens if you have to transfer the crew to the lunar module. And uh, thankfully, that was documented to a degree. Uh-huh. And the crew was able to manually transfer those guidance settings uh, into the LM computer before the command module was put to sleep.
0: Yeah, I think they were really anticipating a computer failure and not a complete sh- system shutdown. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's the same yeah. it's the same deal. And, you know, fortunately this is one of those reasons why the people who are in these spacecraft are uh, incredibly well trained professionals mm-hmm. is To do this, they have to do a bunch of calculations because they have to adjust because the angle that is seen from the command module is not the same as the angle from the lunar module. So even though you're transferring the data from one computer to another, you can't just read out the numbers. You actually have to convert all the numbers. And Jim Lovell did that. And um, so he's he's like doing math problems while this – the potential catastrophe is happening around him. He's got to do the math problems really quickly to get the numbers right. And he actually radios down to mission control and says, here are the numbers I got. Is this right? Uh, can you check my math here? And they and, and that scene is in the movie too, but that really happened. They're like, yeah, that's that's right. Lovell did get the math right. And they re-input that information. And then they were able to move the the guidance and transfer it to the LEM so that the system knew where they were in space, even with the command module shut down.
1: Yeah, because if you think about the way the lunar module was meant to be used, it would decouple from the command service module, go to the surface and come back. And it the, its guidance system didn't really have any sort of understanding of, oh, there's a dead command service module, like bolted to my back. And so right. you have to consider that when moving the guidance over, like you said, you're off. There's issues a little bit later where, uh, and it's, it's a kind of a big scene in the movie where the the way the lunar module flew on its own and the way that it flew with the command service module attached are totally different. And Lovell talks about right. it in his book of basically having to relearn how to fly this thing because – its center of gravity is off, right? Right. The he cent- never
0: he never tested flying the Limb with a service module yeah. attached. No one did. <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> no. Doesn't doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-mm. Okay, so all this work on the guidance system was very critical, uh, because they had to do some burns. Um, they they had to make a course adjustment because in order to reach the Fra Maro Highlands, they could not be on a free return trajectory. So previous Apollo missions that had landed on the moon, eleven and twelve They went their trajectory to the moon was free return, which meant if they didn't stop themselves and go into orbit, they would just come back to Earth. But you couldn't get to more polar regions of the moon on a free return. So Apollo 13 was not on a free return trajectory. So if they wanted to get them home, they actually had to do a burn or otherwise they would fly past the Earth. It would be very bad. So they have to do these burns, but they have to use the LEM descent motor. You know, this is the motor mm-hmm. that is just meant to set you down on the surface of the moon. It is not meant to steer Mm-mm. in this sort of way. But it's it. Like, they, they, they have the big engine on the on the service module, but that's where this explosion happened. And they decided that there was no way that they could count on that because if there was damage, it could be an enormous explosion if they tried to run that. So they have to use the LEM descent motor
1: in order to make these burns that will get them back on a free return trajectory yeah. and the command module is dead which you need to power up the service module engine anyways that's
0: true too right yeah they would have had to keep it running on battery power and then run that it just wasn't going to happen yeah so, so you've got to use what you have and what you have is the descent motor on the limb i mean lucky that they had this configuration where they have two spacecraft and two engines in mm-hmm. two different directions right so that they could do it
1: yeah as bonkers as the whole Apollo hardware stack looked, all hooked up, it's what saved them. Yeah. So they do this burn at uh, 61 hours into the mission, burned it for 34 seconds to get into that free return trajectory. So they come around the moon uh, and use gravity to, uh, to slingshot around and to come home. Um, and this means
0: that Jim Lovell orbited the moon again without being able to go down and land on it, which he'd already done on yep. Apollo 8 so he had the other guys like peer out the window and take pictures um and and get there sort of like we're right here at the moon kind of thing mm-hmm. but he was a little cranky about it because that's not why he was there you know ultimately Jim Lovell flew on this mission to land because he had already flown past the moon and he was not going to get his chance
1: yeah you got to imagine even for someone as professional as Lovell that'd it be disappointing to anybody Right. For sure. Uh, so they round the moon, and the next objective is a second burn to increase their rate of speed. They want to take time off the clock because they have, as we'll talk about, water, power, heat. They have all these issues to deal with, and the sooner they get home, the better. Um, and they also need to control where they splash
0: down. They were going to come down in the Indian Ocean, and they didn't have equipment there. Mm-hmm. So they were they were going to have to have, like, random Navy vessel uh, pick them up and and it was they were really uncomfortable. They wanted them in the Pacific where they were planning. and most importantly, they also wanted them home faster because they were they you know were really concerned about not having enough of of supply of oxygen and food and water and anything to get them all the way home if they couldn't speed it up a little bit. so they they were gonna do this burn. They actually could have done uh, they could have dumped the service module and that would have reduced the the mass and they could have uh come home 36 hours sooner but there was a discussion about leaving the heat shield once you eject that service module the heat shield is exposed to space and what if it hits something and what if it 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 is damaged in some way then that's gonna end the mission they're gonna they're gonna burn up in the atmosphere Mm -hmm. so they decided to be cautious um and just use another uh a burn to save twelve hours instead of thirty-six hours.
1: So this took place two hours after their closest pass, uh, closest distance to the moon. So it's the PC plus two burn. To this day, just another sort of fact about Apollo thirteen, it holds the record for the crewed spacecraft to be farthest from the Earth at two hundred and forty eight thousand six hundred and fifty-five miles. So it was hard to get lined up for the PC plus two burn um uh, because on top of everything
0: else you remember everything in, in space you know is going in the direction there's no like gravity well, there's gravity but it's all affected and there's no air wind resistance or anything like that basically there's a cloud of the, that frozen oxygen that's bled out of the tanks mm-hmm. and and debris from the explosion and it's going with the spacecraft too which means that it's hard to see the stars in the sky to get alignments for navigation, um, and you needed to get the guidance system in alignment so you know exactly where you're put where you're burning, so that you will end up in the nice warm waters of the Pacific Ocean, or are really on Earth at all. Yeah, um, you need to see you need to navigate to make mm-hmm. that burn because you can't just burn. You got to burn in the
1: exact right direction for the right amount of time. That's right. And a plan was devised to use the one star they could see clearly being the sun. And there's part in Lovell's book talking about, normally if you just point your optics at the sun, they're going to melt, right? Like We saw that with the eclipse a few years ago. People just like point their DSLR at the sun and it is a smoldering hot mess. So they had like all these filters and they got it stopped down enough and they were able to use the sun in conjunction with the placement of the moon to align the spacecraft. And the descent engine on the limb Performed again for them and put the spacecraft, get this, less than a foot a second off of its intended speed. I mean, that is, all things considered, pretty great precision. Okay,
0: we need to talk about the LEM and the fact that the LEM is a machine designed to land on the moon with two guys standing inside and they're only in there for a few hours. And now it's three guys and they're going to be in there for days. And this means. They're going to use all the consumables on the limb, the water, the power, the oxygen. And so another thing that they have to do is shut off as many limb systems as possible in order to get home. Uh,
1: These power down procedures were successful and bought the crew enough time to get home. But Apollo 13 was not done throwing its crew curveballs quite yet. Yeah. Mm. So let's take a break here and talk about our first sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea, complete with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. So think about that project that maybe you've uh, been putting off and you want to start now. Maybe it needs a store or a portfolio or a blog or a podcast or a gallery. Well, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that stuff. And there's nothing to install. There are no patches to worry about. No upgrades are needed. You just don't have to worry about that kind of thing because Squarespace has got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help or have any questions. let lets you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. And those templates are one of my favorite parts about Squarespace. There are a bunch of great options, and you can go in and customize them all. You can even, if you are the nerdy type like me, uh, write custom CSS to override things uh, in the template that you want to, but... Uh, it's amazing how flexible the system is. You don't have to know any code, but if you do know code, you can use that CSS if you want. Squarespace plans start at $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for the support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So once Apollo 13 was headed home, there was
0: another bit of engineering work that still needed to be done. One that would save the astronauts from being suffocated by all the carbon dioxide they were exhaling into the air of the lunar module
1: so every cruise spaceship has some sort of chemical scrubber. It pulls in carbon dioxide from the air, and Odyssey and Aquarius both had them. Uh, the problem is the LIMPS scrubbers were only designed to support two astronauts for 45 hours or so, and the LIM was now home to three astronauts for several days, so they were just saturating the system. Yeah, it's good news, though, Stephen, good news. The command module had plenty more.
0: Oh, good. Can we just, like, plug those in and be good to go? Well, okay, so the command module's turned off, so we can't recirc the air from over there. Sure. And the astronauts aren't over there, so you're going to have to bring it over to the LEM. Okay. Uh, But I have some bad news uh, involving government contracting. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, These two spacecraft were designed completely separately, um, other than their little interconnects that they had. Uh, And so the two scrubber systems, completely incompatible, at least in terms of shape. Uh, Chemically, they're the same, right? Chemically, it's lithium hydroxide pellets in a box, and then a, uh, uh, they react with carbon dioxide, pull it out of the air. You have it in a air recirc situ- uh, system, and it works. But um, But one of them looks like a big box, and the other one looks like a long tube. And so you can't – like, you can pull one out, but then you don't – it's like – I don't know. It's like putting a beta tape into a VCR that's VHS. Sorry, old reference, lost on
1: younger listeners. Like shoving a laser disc into an iPod. It's, it is literally a round peg in a square hole. It does not work. doesn't work. Contractors who built these subsystems were called in. Engineers were called in. Basically had to rig the system together to connect the wrong size canister to the limbs air circulation system. But you can't just pop out and go to Radio Shack or go to Target or someplace. Amazon Prime isn't around. You can't order stuff. So you have to use what's on hand. And the result was a plastic cover built from a checklist book, a plastic storage bag, various tubes, part of a sock, all duct taped together into a makeshift system. It was nicknamed the mailbox. And that really is what it looks like. Not only do you have to figure it out, but you, you can't send photos, right? You just have voice Yeah, So you have to write a procedure and read the procedure up to astronauts who are slowly suffocating and are freezing cold and tired to build it. So let's just say it. The LEM was a really unpleasant place to be on the Mm -hmm. ride back from the moon. Yeah. Uh, The the
0: heaters are off. It got cold. It was in the mid-40s Fahrenheit in uh, Aquarius, and Odyssey was right around freezing. They had made the mistake, (laughs) so they tried to take a nap over in odyssey um and the sun was shining in at this point through the windows and so it was in their eyes so they closed the shutters so it got even colder in the the odyssey like what are you what are you doing uh they had sleeping bags uh fred hayes ended up sleeping in the tunnel between odyssey and aquarius because it was too cold to sleep in odyssey at all um, the food stores were still in Odyssey, of course. So there, it's in the movie, and it, it really happened. Lovell goes over to get some hot dogs and finds that they're partially frozen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was not it was not great. They mm-hmm. they put on their uh, a second set of cotton long johns that they had, but it didn't they didn't really help that much. Uh, they thought about putting on their spacesuits, but that was impractical because you wouldn't have the power to run the internal fans, and you'd overheat if you wore them. Although right. they did put in their on their boots, um, which which again only Lovell and Hayes had. Uh, Swigert is standing in the uh, in the lem, getting water, and the drinking water dispenser leaks, and he uh, his socks get soaking wet. Jeez. They get colder and colder. Now my feet get cold sometimes, and I have to put socks on. And, and And I cannot even imagine being in a forty degree thing with socks, and then have them be wet socks. And he would just rub his feet together. And they actually offered to have him put uh, one of their uh, one of the other guys' uh, boots on. Mm-hmm. And he said he said he didn't want that. He just wanted to keep rubbing them to kind of keep them warm. That was working better for him. At one point, Deke Slayton radioed up directly, again, not as Capcom, but as the head of the astronauts. And he said, you guys might uh, want to pop out some uh, p- some dexedrine tablets, which is a powerful stimulant, just to be awake. Yeah, And uh, they're like, yeah, okay, thanks, Deke. That's a good suggestion there, because yeah. they're exhausted and miserable.
1: Yeah, Lovell talks about that and, and said that his concern was the crash afterwards. And so yeah. they, they just sort of Uh, kept on. Um, You mentioned the water. This was extremely rationed at this point. There wasn't much water on the limb to begin with. Remember, you don't have fuel cells, so you're not generating new water. And you have to have water to keep the very few limb systems that are on, keep them from overheating. So there was a cooling system built into the spacecraft, uh, leaving very little water for the astronauts. I mean, less than a soda can a day. Um, And They ended up having overage when they landed, so I don't think they even drank what they were supposed to. Uh, Lovell came back like 14 pounds lighter or something. I mean, it was a a really hard situation to be in. Lovell was so dehydrated that he actually got a little loopy. When they were
0: powering up Odyssey late in the game, he was actually misentering computer commands on the console. (laughs) Um, But Houston was watching what he was entering, and they were there to correct him. If you did that wrong, Jim, you did that wrong. Mm-hmm. And it was because he stopped drinking water because he was afraid of the uh, water situation.
1: Yeah. So you're dehydrated. You're probably fighting hypothermia. Really hungry. But then there was because with Apollo 13, there's always one more thing. Uh-huh. Th- then there was the urine problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Speaking of water and dehydration, uh,
0: there was a problem with the urine dump that where they, you know, they usually. Uh, had this urine dump where they put their their urine you know in in bags or whatever and they and they use some power and it shoots it out traditional dump but that required power so they used the side hatch there was like a a, a way that they could feed it out the side hatch and and uh, and they were doing that for a while and the tracking like we said before about like this halo of stuff around the spacecraft right they told the, they told them to stop dumping the urine out of the spacecraft because it was making it harder for them to get a fix on them. Um, So they spent the next three days stashing urine bags everywhere around the spacecraft. Yet another way, this was not a pleasant place to be. And they ended up using the collection bags that were inside, uh, usually inside spacesuits. And so they just basically kept those on as they worked and went in the bags, which is fine. Except they kept them on so long that uh, without going into details, Fred Hayes ended up with a urinary tract infection. Um, and he, and uh, he, although he, it's unclear whether he ever actually ran a fever. He got a pretty serious case of the chills while he was over in Odyssey. They had to kind of rub him and warm him up and all that. So uh, it was awful. It was awful. It, it was awful. And, and the, it was supposed to be a temporary thing. It was really supposed to like for, for the next, you know, day or, or half day or whatever, can you guys not do that? But that nobody ever told them to start dumping their urine again. So they didn't.
1: So it just kept building up. Whoops. Then there's, The condensation. So Odyssey has been shut down for days. You're breathing out moisture, you know, in in your breath, and it it joins together, lands on surfaces. So before long, basically everything in the spacecraft is covered in these moisture droplets. And if you think about powering something back up, obviously concerns of shorting things out come to mind. Uh, That ended up not being an issue when they powered Odyssey back up, actually, Partially because after the Apollo 1 fire, they went back through the command module and did a much better job insulating all the wires and connectors. And that work helped prevent the Odyssey for and 13 from having issues at power-up. So, uh, again, something from a previous situation, you know, making improvements to the spacecraft paid off here.
0: Yeah, yeah. And very much in the attitude of Apollo 13 at this point is like, well... I mean, we don't have an alternative, so...
1: Yeah, we've got to turn it on and
0: hope for the best. <laughs> just just uh, see what happens. So, back they come. Apollo 13 is screaming back toward the Earth, away from the moon. One more thing. <laughs> just keeps on happening. They were a little bit shallow for reentry, So they had to do one more burn, a little correction burn, to keep the spacecraft in that thin corridor that lets you not burn up or skip off the atmosphere and be lost forever. Um, so the limb is mostly powered down, right? They made those other burns and then they powered down the limb even more to save energy, but now they d- need to do this other burn, uh, without instrumentation. Jeez. So, uh, this is a, a dramatic moment in the movie where Tom Hanks basically says, well, I'll keep the crosshairs on the Terminator on earth and uh, fire it for this long, and we'll see. And it seems like, oh, my God, it's got to be the exact right angle, and it has to be exact right amount of time. And it turns out, not really. It needed to be in the general direction for a general amount of time to just
1: whatever the opposite of shallow reentry, deepen it up a little bit. (laughs) Sure, yeah. It's a corridor, right? There is an attack angle that you can be plus or minus of to make reentry work.
0: And they're they're moving so fast in such a certain direction that doing a burn doesn't like turn you ninety degrees or something. It Mm -hmm. it literally is just a slight reduction or increase on wherever whatever your vector is. So it's not quite as precise as uh, you would think, but it's still you know is fraught because if they don't do this burn, they're concerned that the they're going to be too shallow and they're going to skip off the atmosphere like a like a stone skipping off a pond. So, uh, But it worked. It went to plan. They were pretty happy with the results. Um, uh, One of the things that they had to do is uh, they were lighter, and they hadn't realized that the spacecraft was lighter because they uh, didn't bring,
1: like, 40 pounds of moon rocks back with them. The the biggest challenge here, though, once you are back in the corridor, is to bring the command module back online. So, again, you've got no power, so you have to start and run on the re-entry batteries. You may think, well, what happens if you run out of battery? Well, your your parachutes don't fire, for one. So it's it's really critical that these batteries run through re-entry. And uh, like we had talked about, these batteries have been tapped during that hectic period after the accident. And so they weren't fully topped off. And to address this, Johnson Space Center looked to John Aaron. We spoke about him and Apollo 12. He is the flight controller who had the SCE to AUX call that basically rebooted the, the, the whole stack and, and brought Apollo 12 back online after being struck by lightning. Uh, he had been working with Ken Mattingly and others on the procedures for powering up the bare essentials for reentry uh, and doing so where you don't trip anything. You've got to do this in the right order and use as little power as possible. Right. Now, to give the command module a fighting chance at
0: making it all the way back, what they did was they worked out a way to siphon power from the LEM and put it back in the command module. That's not how it was supposed to work. Mm -mm. Um, It was slow. It was super inefficient. But it provided just enough juice for Odyssey to get powered up and stay powered up until after splashdown. So here the LEM comes in handy again. Um, in getting them home by contributing what's left of its excess. And there's a um, there's a story about this, about the idea that they're, they're trying to keep some excess power on the limb when they power it down because they're concerned that if they run out of battery, they're not going to be able to get the astronauts back. And then at some point... John Aaron or somebody who works for him comes to the people who've been working on the Lem and says, I need to steal some of your battery. Mm-hmm. You're gonna need to you're gonna need to have excess battery. And they do the math and they're like, Well, we do. We were we were saving that to be safe and he's like, Well, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take your margin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so they're like, all right, well, good thing we built that in. You can have it. And that's what they did. So they they used the limb to charge the Odyssey battery back up uh, to regain some of what they had lost when they were running after the fuel cells had turned off. You just run like a long USB-C cable between the two of them. And sure. Hope,
1: hope for the best. Sure.
0: Well, it's so inefficient. You really want to think about it like it's a like it's a Qi charger on yeah. your phone, right? <laughs> sure. It's like, well, you know, I'd really rather plug this directly in because it would be much faster and more efficient. And unfortunately, no, this is not that kind of a connection. It's more more like a Qi charger. It's it'll it's slow. It's inefficient, but it'll get you there
1: eventually. So they do this. They work through the power up procedure. That despite the condensation and the state of the crew uh goes smoothly uh it was read up to uh swagger by none other than ken mattingly who we should note did not have the measles did, never got the measles no no but before they could
0: uh, re-enter they needed to say goodbye to the service module and the lunar module uh first they it dam- they uh they ejected the damaged service module um which uh you know, a little over 138 hours into the mission, they released it from the command module. This was their first chance to see what the heck happened for this whole mission. They got a chance as the command module uh, and the service module parted for them to look out the window and shoot a lot of pictures. And you can hear them talking about what they saw as the service module pulled away. And one of that is that right? Right by the heat antenna, the whole panel is blown out, almost from the uh, stage to the uh, engine. Copy that. Yeah, it looks like it got to the uh, SPS now, too. Isn't it?
1: It's really a mess. So panel four had been completely blown off with just a burned crater where the uh, tank two had been sitting, where it had been installed. The explosion had torn up the high-gain antenna, leading to the communication issues they'd had, and the damage was even evident from uh, all the way down to the the engine bell. So we talked earlier about you can't use the service module engine because you risk explosion. Turns out that was probably a well-founded fear. It looked like there was damage there. Um, But there was also damage at the other end where it met the heat shield on the command module. Yeah, and this is, again, one of those
0: things where, like, is the heat shield damaged? We don't know, but there's nothing we can do about it if it is. So we're just going to have to give it a shot. Um, then it was time to eject the LEM. Uh, designed to land on the moon. Instead, kept three astronauts alive for four days. But that limb is not a reentry vehicle. Mm-mm. And uh, so they have to let it, uh, let it uh, burn up. And, uh, and so they turn on the command module, they get all the guidance correct, they've transferred all that guidance information back to the command module now. Um, they all come back in, they close the hatch, and they eject the Aquarius. Um, she was a good ship, they say on the radio, sort of plaintively as it, as it floats away. Now, normally, cutting Aquarius free would have been done by using little thrusters along the radius of the service module, but they were dead and gone.
1: Oops. So what did they do, Steven? So engineers had come up with a procedure to use air pressure in the tunnel between them to separate them. So they usually you would basically remove all the air pressure and so when you release it, you don't have this burst of air that could, you know, push the spacecraft apart. But this was their only option. So they left some air in the tunnel, and when they unlatch, that air, you know, comes rushing out and pushes Odyssey and Aquarius apart without damaging either of them. Odyssey is solo three guys are in it you know most of
0: aquarius was destroyed in reentry. there's some debris in the ocean uh among what re-entered was almost four kilograms of plutonium oxide fuel that was to power long-term scientific experiments that never made it to the surface of the moon i believe this was the first time that um plutonium was flown into space uh, but they the the plan was that it was it was shielded and it was not even if there was a failure, it was not going to uh burn up the the plutonium oxide fuel impacted the ocean above the Tonga trench, and six kilometers below this
1: below the surface little pieces of Aquarius remain to this day. yeah, there was a big concern about not only landing in the Indian Ocean because you don't have support, but they wanted to put Aquarius down over really deep water to keep this plutonium. From causing any injury or anyone finding it, and so that was another reason for that burn to, to get them over the Pacific. Uh, so at this point, it's all up to the heat shield, right? And like we said, there's no backup plan for this. There's no way to know if it's damaged or not. You can't get out and look at it. Even if you can, there's no way to send another craft up. And like it's just, it is what it is. Uh, and so they start reentry, and uh, like other, like all other missions, there was a, a period of radio blackout from the plasma that's being created as you burn through the atmosphere. Typically this would last about four minutes. Odyssey reached that and the seconds just kept on ticking. Obviously at this point, if you're in mission control or you're watching this, you, your fears of the heat shield had failed, but uh, some six minutes after going dark, the command modules picked up. turns out they were still a bit shallow despite that final correction burn. So they were in that, re-entry phase a little bit longer they they were not so shallow that it caused a problem they still got back but it was you know a longer blackout than expected and no doubt the longest two minutes anyone's ever felt
0: yeah and a record for blackout time in re-entry mm-hmm. too so they didn't really even know what was going on and but they did get through it the lunar and service modules are gone of course but the apollo 13 command module uh, is still around and on display it's at the kansas cosmosphere and Space Center in Hutchinson, Kansas. So if you're ever allowed out of your house and want to go to Kansas, you can see the Apollo 13 command
1: module. Uh, The crew touched down safely. The parachutes all worked. Everything was fine. Uh, They were picked up by the rescue team, flown to Hawaii, and then two days later awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Richard Nixon. It's pretty good. No talk here of like, that. you got to stay in the weird... You know, trailer apartment for three weeks. <laughs> A lot of that had been put aside. Um, but as soon as the crew was back, and you know they kind of got Fred Hayes patched up, the investigation into what happened started. So we'll talk about what
0: actually happened and what went wrong. But first, I want to tell you about our other sponsor for this episode. Um, this episode is brought to you in part by Tuparev Technologies. Tuparev believes in creating modern tools for the astronomy community, whether you're a professional astronomer, an amateur, a student, or just a lover of night skies. It's for all Apple platforms and the web. Some professional astronomers are using outdated, poorly designed, underpowered, and overcomplicated apps to control their expensive instruments and and they're mostly only made for the English-speaking community. The team at Tuparev Technologies have gathered a team of professional and amateur astronomers who are also experienced macOS and iOS developers, along with excellent designers. And they're all bursting with ideas about what the future of astronomical computing should look like. They're aiming to create astronomy tools for the 21st century, for image capturing and processing, for control and robotization of astronomical instruments, for storage, analysis, and distribution of astronomical data in the cloud, all ready for real-world use in modern astronomy, space science research labs, advanced amateur observatories, and schools, along with a multilingual platform for everyone who loves the night skies and outer space. If you want to get early access to their tools and be one of the first to join their global astronomy community, go to starcluster.app liftoff now and join their email newsletter. That's starcluster.app slash liftoff and be sure to join their email newsletter thank you to Tupperware technologies for their support of liftoff and all of relay fm so what caused all this jason well oxygen tank number two steven and it's not even close <laughs> um oxygen tank number two was originally part of apollo 10 the shelf it was installed on was removed for modification and it was dropped two inches by technicians which caused damage, but they didn't take the hardware out of the program. They decided that they could fix it and use it again. Um, So the tank was installed in Apollo 13. It was tested with the other tanks. And this is the part that I, I, before researching this, I didn't realize. So they did this outgassing test. They're like draining the tanks and during this test tank 1 drops to 50% capacity which is what they expected. Tank 2 didn't drain properly. It was still at 92% capacity. They tried to blow it out with gaseous oxygen. That didn't work. So the contractor decides, we got to get the oxygen out of there. We'll boil it off. We'll use the we'll turn on the electrical heater in the tank and boil off the oxygen. But they use 65 volt DC power and they left it on for 8 hours. It wasn't designed for 65-volt DC power. It was designed to be run on the 28-volt DC system on the spacecraft. The high-voltage current basically welded a bunch of switches closed. It prevented the automated shutoff of the system, which meant the heater kept running. The heater caused the tank to heat up to a 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Whoa. Yeah. And they didn't know. That's the, that's the real tragedy here, is this was a real uh, Chernobyl problem. If you've seen Chernobyl, the whole thing about, like, we don't know how much radiation we got because our radiation meters only go up to a certain level. The thermometer on the tank only went up to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So they had no idea uh, that the high temperatures were going on inside. And that high temperature, serious damage was done to the Teflon insulation coating the internal wiring of the tank. And that is what made the tank ready to explode. Um Jim Lovell, in hindsight, he said he was among all you know all the people he could have said that tank is a lemon. Don't take it out, put a new tank in we Why are we flying with this tank? but he let it go. Everybody else let it go too. but in hindsight, looking at the story, it's very clear that that tank was damaged and should have been discarded when it was removed from Apollo ten. Mm-hmm. It certainly should have been discarded after it failed the drainage test, and then, of course, boiling it off. They should never have been able to hook it up to 65-volt power. It's just a chain of events that happened that led to this. But you can track it back and see all
1: the things that went wrong with that that tank, and it all comes from tank number two. Uh, there's also something uh, we want to touch on that Jim Lovell says during the mission, uh, and he doesn't realize he was on an open microphone, but it was said and it was heard. Um he says I'm afraid this is going to be the last lunar mission for a long time. You can imagine someone with his his career, right? He is he is one of the most respected astronauts in NASA. This carries serious weight and he was concerned if they didn't get home or even if they did, this would be enough to shut down the Apollo program. They'd already accomplished the primary goal of landing on the moon. There was already talks of cuts, the budget's already shrinking. And, you know, NASA had to run around, do some damage control, explaining why there would be an investigation. NASA planned to go back to the moon as soon as they could. But that that line, you know, that he said he was afraid it was going to be the last lunar mission definitely was a, a shadow over a lot of this investigation. Yeah. Yes. They had to
0: do, do damage control, PR, damage control, walk it back, walk it back. Mm-hmm. That's what you got to do. Proving that you always design for the last disaster, (laughs) not the next one. Apollo 13's accident did have some impact on the design of the service module on future Apollo missions. They put in another battery and a third reserve oxygen tank. And that third tank was on the opposite side from the two primary tanks. And could be separated from the fuel cells and used for crew oxygen so the idea is the situation involving apollo 13 exposed some failings of the design of the command and service module that they tried to address um you know it would never be repeated and so it it turned out to not be necessary but it because the accident exposed these limitations of the design they wanted to address them and so they did in future missions so, as we like to close
1: out all these Apollo episodes, uh, let's talk about the uh, the crew and kind of w- what happened with them after the mission. So, um, Swigert was recommended by Deke Slayton to be the command module pilot of the Apollo Soyuz test project, which we'll talk about eventually. Slayton believed that he deserved another flight after his performance on Apollo 13. Remember, he comes in two days before launch. He is part of this crew that survives amazing odds and... Um, so he was selected for this this last sort of Apollo mission. Uh, but in the aftermath of the Apollo 15 postal covers incident, which uh, we're going to talk about when we get to Apollo 15 in August of next year. Right. And we mentioned it, I think, in our last episode uh, in passing as well. Yeah. Yeah. So basically astronauts were cutting deals. They were taking these like books of stamps and envelopes and stuff on their missions, and then they'd be sold at a, you know, a high rate, <laughs> making good money on the side. And... Uh, NASA got wind of this, and it, it turns out that our uh, our command module pilot friend was in agreement to take some of these on his next mission, and he was bumped from the flight. Jack Swigert left NASA after all that. He entered politics. He became um, first executive
0: director of the Committee on Science and Astronautics for the U.S. House of Representatives. He, he lost in 1978. He ran for Congress again in 1982. And sadly, um, while he was running for Congress, he... Uh, developed a malignant tumor in his right nasal passage, disclosed this to voters. He was expected to make a full recovery. He won, um, but he actually died of bone marrow cancer before he could take
1: office. Lunar module pilot Fred Hayes is still living as of this recording. He was on the backup crew for Apollo 16 and slated to command Apollo 19 before it was canceled. Um, but he did not take this as a sign to leave NASA. Instead, he moved to the to the then uh, new shuttle program, piloting the Space Shuttle Enterprise in three. Free flight and landing test in 1977. This is where the shuttle was decoupled from the uh, 747 built to carry it around. Jason, we we saw this in Houston last year, which is really cool. Yeah. Hayes was originally named to be on the second crew shuttle flight, slated to deliver a booster module to Skylab, designed to keep it in orbit. But Skylab's orbit decayed and burned up mostly in 1979, and the shuttle was delayed and not flying for uh, another two years in 1981.
0: Yeah, so he left NASA when it was clear his shuttle mission wasn't going to happen. He became a test pilot and executive at Grumman, and he worked there until his retirement in 1996. But he is, that means he's one of only four astronauts who conducted the Enterprise landing test not to fly in space on the shuttle. So only one of the four who didn't get that chance. It's a shame. It is. And then there's Jim Lovell. I mean, what can you say about Jim Lovell? I think he's going to go high in the astronaut draft when we do that. One of only three men to travel to the moon twice the only one to visit twice but not walk on its surface. He continues to hold the record with his crewmates for reaching the farthest distance that humans have ever traveled from the Earth. Uh, As promised, he did not fly again. Three years after Apollo 13, he retired from the Navy and from NASA. He worked at telecommunications companies before retiring in 1991 uh, as an executive vice president of Centel, which was later brought by Sprint. And in 1994, he wrote a book with Jeffrey Kluger that was uh, originally called Lost Moon, but uh, with it was it was the basis of the movie Apollo 13, you'll see in the credits of that movie, it's based on the book, which they then retitled Apollo 13. The book is just called Apollo 13 now. And the movie, uh, we'll plug here. We spoke about it on an episode of The Incomparable that's going to be out later this week. So you can hear me and Steven and a few other people talk in depth about the movie on that episode of The Incomparable uh, episode 510. And the book is great. Like, I, I read the book years ago, and Stephen, I know you just read it when we were planning this episode, too. It's fantastic. Depending on what version of Apollo 13, the movie you've got, you should check out, there's a commentary track from Jim and Marilyn Lovell where they talk about their experiences and how they fit and don't fit with what's happening in the movie. And I it is one of my favorite movie commentary tracks of all time because you've got the historic uh, people who are being depicted in the movie talking about the movie
1: that they're in, which is amazing, both fantastic. And uh, go check out that episode of The Incomparable. I'll have it in the show notes. So if you click on this, and the, the the day or so after this comes out, that link won't go anywhere, but eventually it will. Yes. Uh, well, I think that does it, Jason. We have we have uh, done Apollo 13. Yeah, it's a
0: it's quite a story, and it is not not NASA's finest hour in terms of the success of the mission, but their finest hour in terms of showing ingenuity. Uh, under in- immense pressure on the ground and up in space to get those astronauts home
1: and uh, this is our last Apollo episode until January of next year with Apollo fourteen. All this investigation took a lot of time, yeah, yeah, they didn't get back into space. Uh, originally, Apollo fourteen was
0: scheduled for October, but they didn't make it that would that would it's a shame because then uh, they would have been up there when I was born. <laughs> but instead, They waited until 1971, and so we will wait until 2021 to talk about Apollo 14.
1: Uh, But don't fear, we will be back in two weeks with a uh, regular episode of Liftoff. Uh, Until then, if you want to find links to a whole bunch of resources about Apollo 13 that we've rounded up, that we pulled our research from, head on over to the website. That is relay.fm slash liftoff slash 121. While you're there, you can uh, send us an email with feedback or follow up. You can join and uh, as a member to Relay FM and support Liftoff directly. Thank you so much to those of you who are members. And if you're interested, you can learn more there. You can also find us on Twitter. Jason is JSnell. And you can find me there as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios.